0: everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Nico Slate about his new book, Gandhi's Search for the Perfect Diet, Eating with the World in Mind. Nico is professor of history and director of graduate studies at Carnegie Mellon University. Nico's work centers on histories of anti-racist activism, both in the United States and India. The book is actually one of two new books out right now. I encourage you to go over to the New Books and History channel to hear Nico talk about his other book, Lord Cornwallis is Dead, The Struggle for Democracy in the United States and India. Another fascinating conversation there. Nico Slate, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Carrie. It's a real pleasure to talk with you.
0: Thanks. Nico, let's start with maybe some background. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself and the origins of the book. Where did the project begin and what drew you to this aspect of Gandhi's life?
1: Um, maybe we should start actually with the fact that I I grew up with a single mom who worked late and often very far away from home, and so at a relatively early age I had to make my own way in the kitchen. And in addition to to uh, working, my mom was also an incredibly forgiving eater, and so I grew up with this overinflated sense of my own culinary skills. No matter what I made, no matter how simple it was, you know. Basic tomato sauce or barbecue chicken with just barbecue sauce. My mom would rave endlessly about how amazing it was and how talented I was as a chef. And you know, when you're a kid and you get that kind of positive affirmation, it often can make you really love something. And so, from a pretty early age, I really loved cooking. I wasn't any good at it, uh, but I really loved doing it. And as I got older, I also developed a pretty strong interest in nutrition maybe even you might say an obsession with nutrition. Uh, I'm one of these people who loves to read up on the latest nutrients and think about which foods to eat to maximize their nutritional benefit. And, of course, Gandhi uh, was someone who loved food and, and really loved nutrition. And so I saw in him a kindred spirit of sorts, someone whom I could learn from, uh, you know, sympathize with, empathize with, sometimes see myself in. Uh, And that's really what what started the project for me.
0: One of the things that most interested me about the book is how much of the story you're able to tell in Gandhi's own words. Uh, So would you describe the archive that you were working with? Where is it? um, And where is he doing all this writing about diet? And how does it fit in with the rest of his published work? This is one of
1: the most fun parts of this project for me is that there is an amazing archive of Gandhi's thoughts and writings on food preserved in his collected works. Collected works are, I think, one of the greatest historical archives that exist, something like 98 volumes, 500 pages each, that contain not just all of his published writings, and Gandhi published a lot, but also his letters, his speeches, a lot of diary entries. And uh, you can search through these things now digitally To find every reference to chocolate or almonds or milk or vitamin C or anything you're interested in. And you're able to see how Gandhi's thoughts on that particular subject evolve over time, how deeply contextualized they were. And often you get surprised, I was anyway, by some of the amazing things you find when you say search for ginger or cinnamon or chocolate. I mentioned chocolate twice, I think, actually, because that's one of my favorites, and and uh, you see that these nutritional ideas are for Gandhi really one of the the key pillars of his entire life. They connected him to his politics, to his personal life, uh, to, very powerfully to his religious and spiritual views, uh, and so the I think the the main reason why you find so many rich things that Gandhi himself wrote about food and nutrition is that Gandhi himself saw how food and nutrition could be connected to every facet of his life.
0: Well, speaking of the, the sort of religious uh, aspects of diet, one of the, the things I noticed was the, the chapter on vegetarianism. It seems like that's not only the, the longest lasting and most consistent Part of his diet. Um, But you're right in there about how the Vegetarian Society in London seems like a really important proving ground for Gandhi, Um, not just testing out his ideas about diet, uh, but also about social justice and making his first public speeches and even getting his first publications in writing. Um, so is it fair to say that the Gandhi we know gets his start here? Uh, what's so important about the vegetarian diet and his activism?
1: I think I think it is fair to say that you know if you look at it, when Gandhi comes to London uh, in the early 1890s, he is a, a relatively affluent young legal student who has only just b- barely gotten involved in anything political. And he's also very shy. Uh, He's a a fairly quiet, reticent young man. And what vegetarianism does is it gives him a bridge between some of his deepest convictions, convictions that are formed in childhood, and that are very profoundly spiritual and religious for him. It bridges those deep convictions with the world beyond, particularly the world of politics. And it, it encourages him to fight through his shyness to, for example, give public speeches. And he he writes, uh, I think, quite movingly, actually, about how terrified he was the first few times he gave public speeches to these vegetarian audiences. But in many ways, they were the perfect audience for him, because they already had this profound bond with him. And they were they were also weird, just like he was weird, you know, being vegetarian. And that in Victorian England was a weird thing. And, and weird people often uh, have lots of weird ideas. So they were against imperialism, which was also a weird thing at that point, right? And they're against capital punishment and therefore, uh, you know, women's equality, and uh, in, in many cases against racism. And so there's this community of like minded people that Gandhi's able to tap into quite naturally through his, his passion and commitment to vegetarianism. And that then empowers him as a political agent and also broadens his politics, I think contributes to his growing anti imperialism and his views on many other subjects as well. I I think it's absolutely vital. And you see that actually for for decades afterwards, vegetarian politics is one of the key things Gandhi's involved in. In fact, I think if you would have asked him, say, during his years in South Africa, when he's fighting against uh, white racism in South Africa and fighting for the rights of Indian migrants there, uh, what his key priorities were, I think vegetarianism would be up there near the top of the list. He was still very actively involved in fighting for vegetarianism in a variety of different ways. So for Gandhi, it's really a portal. It's an opening politically and, and also really a lifelong commitment. It's both for him.
0: Yeah. And you, you mentioned the community of people that he meets there. Who are some of those figures that are really important to both the future of his sort of diet investigations <laughs> and experiments um, and all of the other kind of social activism he's working in?
1: Uh, so sort of the, if you will, the kind of grandfather of the vegetarian movement is a guy named Henry Salt, uh, and uh, and I should I should actually I should preface this by saying I'm not great with names. Hopefully I'm not getting any first names wrong. I definitely remember his last name because of course it's profoundly ironic given that one of Gandhi's lifelong of, yeah isn't it great? <laughs> one of his lifelong obsessions is of course to reduce the amount of salt in his diet, and he then goes on to lead this profoundly important protest campaign, the Salt March or the Salt Satyagraha. So salt is a very important part of Gandhi's diet. It also happens to be the surname of this very important vegetarian figure. Uh, and Gandhi you know meets this man and uh, and is actually really profoundly moved by his writings. And there's a beautiful moment in Gandhi's autobiography where he talks about uh, about you know almost starving during the first few weeks that he's in England because he's not getting enough nutritious food and he's finding it very difficult to be vegetarian, and then he just happens upon this vegetarian restaurant. And the first thing he sees there is not food. I actually think it's important. The first thing he sees there is a book. It's it's a book by Salt about the history of vegetarianism uh, and, and about vegetarianism and its current practice. And he he buys this book and reads it while he's eating this vegetarian meal. So it's a, it's an intellectual uh, introduction as well as uh, a more personal one. Um, there's a, a man named Oldfield who is... Uh, uh, actually, one of Gandhi's roommates, which I find quite fascinating to imagine these two uh, figures living together. Um, another um, key interesting person is a guy named Henry um, uh, Pollack, P-O-L-A-K. I'm not actually sure how he would pronounce his name. Um, one of the challenges being a historian is, of course, if your figures are dead, you can't ask them actually how right. they pronounce it. <laughs> but he, um, he was a very influential political activist who spent a lot of time with Gandhi in South Africa. Uh, and they bonded on vegetarianism, but then also bonded on the struggle against racism in, in, uh, in South Africa. And so you, you see all of these different figures. Um, for one thing, they're not Indian, which I think is actually really important. Gandhi's diet and his nutritional interests were extraordinarily cosmopolitan, in large part because they're formed uh, outside of India, in, in London first and then in South Africa. And that influences how Gandhi looks at the world. You know his views on diet and nutrition are heavily steeped in Indian culinary traditions, but they're they're also in many ways broader than that, more cosmopolitan than that. And Gandhi will bring a similar openness to many facets of his life. Uh, so it's a, I think that's one key important fact: is that many of these figures are not um, are not Indian. Um, he's a, also inspired by many key. Um, uh, uh, campaigners not just vegetarian but people who are fighting uh, for a variety of different issues so it broadens him nationally and it also broadens his sense of the issues or problems that he's seeing in the world
0: so besides meat what are some of the other foods that gandhi abstained from or attempted to abstain from and why
1: mm, so i mentioned salt um that's a really interesting one because he changes his mind it's one of the more dramatic shifts in his own opinion uh early in life like many people uh he doesn't think much about it he kind of embraces salt as a you know delicious variety you find a couple of instances where he's praising salty foods as a young man but pretty quickly as he gets interested in nutrition he decides that salt is is bad for you and ultimately gets to the point where he decides that uh you can eliminate it entirely as an as an additive so he's very aware that you that salt exists in dairy products, for example, and many fruits and vegetables, there's small amounts of salt. And so he um, he's aware that he's not cutting out salt entirely, but he believes he can live a healthier life without adding any salt to his food. And he calls this his saltless diet. Uh, and will experiment with the saltless diet for many years before eventually deciding that, in fact, it's uh, necessary for him and for all people to have a little bit more salt than that, than that very, very minimum level, while still arguing, and I think rightly, that many of us consume too much salt. So he moves from, at first, sort of embracing the status quo, to then being very, very strict and trying to eliminate all added salt, to moving towards a more moderate ground, uh, which is, actually, that part of the book, that research was one of the key uh, questions for me personally in my own life. When I started the book, I really didn't know how I felt about salt. And reading about Gandhi's uh, experiments with it, engagements with it, and also kind of contemporary scientific uh, nutritional uh, studies have brought me towards a a moderate ground where I try to reduce my amount, but I don't go crazy about it. Um, Sugar, on the other hand, is one where studying Gandhi's life, reading nutritional studies, has actually led me to try to be – and I'm not always great at this – but to try to be more austere. And Gandhi would be proud, um, you know, in that he himself also decided that unlike salt, which he comes to feel more moderate about, sugar is something that he feels very strongly should be avoided uh, with, with some key exceptions. So the biggest one being fruit. Uh, he maintains a lifelong passion for fruit, which is an amb- ambivalent passion for him. Sometimes he feels he's actually too passionate about fruit. Uh, But overall, throughout his life, he sees fruit as a healthy thing, something that should be a part of his diet. Sugar, on the other hand, he decides uh, fairly early on is both injurious to health and also, interestingly, he feels injurious to spiritual growth. Um, This is a part of Gandhi's diet that I found personally very fascinating, but I couldn't go all the way with him on. And that is that he felt that um, the more flavorful you made food, the more dangerous it was from a spiritual perspective, the more likely it was to pull you away from a focus on higher goals, particularly spiritual goals. And He inherits this conception from particular spiritual traditions, particularly facets of Jainism and Hinduism. Um, you know, in, in certain Jain traditions, uh, people eat very purposefully bland food in order to turn their attention and direction towards more spiritual ends. And Gandhi picks up on a lot of that and will often argue that food should not be consumed for the flavor, that focusing on the flavor is a mistake from a spiritual perspective. And yet he never, all the way through his life, he never entirely gives up on the joys of food. Um, And it's actually that part of Gandhi, that inconsistent part of Gandhi that I find most attractive personally as someone who sees the merits in, in some cases of a certain kind of austerity. But also, you know likes to eat my mango just like Gandhi did. Um, I'm, I'm, I appreciate the way in which he's able to ultimately uh, sort of accept some kind of moderation, sometimes grudgingly, but to just recognize that even something like his prohibition on sugar, you know can't be maintained absolutely.
0: Yeah, I I was struck, too, by how often you describe him changing his mind uh, or developing nuance in his thinking as he's gaining more information. And he's really very carefully seeking out lots of nutritional information, as well as kind of searching his own philosophy and his own morality for what he should do. So what else what strikes you as the most um, interesting contradictions? Is it about salt or his mango struggles (laughs) or uh, drinking milk when he would really prefer prefer to be a vegan. What are some of his more interesting contradictions to you?
1: Well, let me start with the last two that you mentioned, because they're both really great examples. So mangoes, of course, are one of his great passions, but a very um, difficult, complicated one for him. There's this wonderful uh, moment in the conclusion of the book, which I called the mango and the Mahatma, um, in which I talk about these two episodes where in one, he gets this crate of mangoes and he writes a letter. Um, to a very dear friend saying, oh, I'm so sorry that you weren't here for me to share these these wonderful mangoes with you. And then uh, 20 years later, he gets a crate of mangoes that are um, sent to help with some uh, patients that Gandhi's helping take care of. And he ends up eating some of them himself and he curses them. He says they're a cursed fruit uh, because they are so delicious. And I, I think it's uh, it's easy to suggest possible reasons why, in one case, he supports mangoes, and in another, he doesn't. You know, is it that, in one case, the mangoes were destined for medical patients he was treating, or is it that he, he's grown with, more austere with age? But in fact, what I found is that he maintains that tension, uh, the tension between loving the flavor of food and seeing it as a danger, he maintains that all the way through his adult life. He never fully reconciles that. Um, and I, I find that very appealing, uh, again, for me personally, because I really do see both sides. I think they're, they're, for me personally, there um, there's something very beautiful about eating a delicious meal, eating a delicious mango, um, and I would never want to give that up. In fact, I would say that there's something spiritually important about the experience of that kind of beauty. Uh, it pulls us out of ourselves. It broadens us. It opens us up. To a, a greater world. The subtitle of the book is Eating with the World in Mind. I think flavor can help us actually connect to the world beyond us. But it can also do exactly the opposite. It can also drive us back into ourselves and narrow our realm of interests, particularly if we fall into a certain kind of gluttonous hedonism, which I can say from personal experience, it's often hard to avoid. Uh, so I think that tension is very productive. And 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 then in terms of his, his vegetarianism, veganism. There you see Gandhi um, really struggling to live ethically uh, with his dietary choices. And he becomes convinced that veganism is the more ethical choice. And yet for a variety of nutritional, particularly digestive reasons, he has a hard time being a vegan. He has a really hard time with beans and lentils. Uh, And so he ends up eventually being convinced that he should continue to consume Uh, milk, particularly goat's milk, because he vows to never consume any milk and then is able to convince himself that he was just thinking of cows when he made the vow. Uh, So he becomes a reluctant vegetarian, really, at that point in his life and remains that way all the way through. I think that's also important. Often with nutritional questions, people can become so confident and so sure of themselves that uh, they they close off a certain tolerance to those who aren't so sure. And, And Gandhi wasn't that way. He could be very firm in his beliefs on something, but then also be able to say, but you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe evidence will change my mind later. Uh, you know, Maybe I'm not seeing this in the right way. So he's, he, he remains a, uh, tolerant of others, and he maintains a certain kind of openness that I think comes from his own awareness of his own mistakes.
0: Yeah, uh, on the subject of that openness, one of the things that you praise Gandhi for in the book um, is his ability to both hold a firm conviction about diet for himself, for instance, the, the vegetarianism, uh, but to make space for differences of opinions. So, for instance, his Muslim friends who eat beef, um, you describe it as a kind of dietary pluralism. Do um, so you have any good uh, stories or examples of that kind of openness and, and how it um, helped him?
1: Well, I think probably the, the, the best example it comes from beef eating because Gandhi was, uh, A, he was a vegetarian, but then he was especially opposed to eating beef on religious grounds. Uh, and, and yet uh, he very clearly tells his followers that it would be an abomination to physically prevent someone else, whether they be Muslim or Christian or even Hindu, from consuming beef. Uh, and that was a very important statement for him to make because India had in that time and still sadly in in our age now, has um, certain people that will go to the extreme of of being violent in their efforts to prevent others from eating beef, um, which Gandhi just was very clear about that you, you know the goal was to convert people to vegetarianism to stop them from eating beef through, uh, through nonviolence, through conversation, through example, um, not, not through coercion and certainly not through violence. Um, and I, I think this is, more broadly speaking, this is, I, I think, uh, an example of something that uh, sadly is in great need in our world today, which is people who are willing to say, I believe very strongly that I'm right on this subject, and I'm going to do everything I can to convince you that, that you're wrong, but I'm not going to kill you. Uh, if I can't convince you, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to harm you. I'm just going to keep trying to pull you in every nonviolent way I can towards what I think is the truth. Um, Gandhi's vegetarianism, I think is a beautiful example of that, of that kind of pluralism.
0: Right. And what we know best about Gandhi is this commitment to nonviolence through political action. Um, you describe the, 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 connections between that philosophy of nonviolence and his choices in his diet. Uh, How does his food choice line up with his political beliefs and actions?
1: Nonviolence is absolutely the foundation of his diet. And conversely, I would say that studying Gandhi's diet allows us a unique window on his nonviolence. Generally speaking, when people study Gandhi's nonviolence, they tend to approach it from a political perspective. How did he use nonviolent civil disobedience to fight against British imperialism, for example? But in fact, Gandhi understood nonviolence much more broadly and much more deeply. And for him, it was ultimately about a, a way of life. It was a philosophy of life that involved uh, trying to live every day in a way that was uh, not ca- causing as little harm as possible to other living beings. And I, I think he actually goes beyond that was actively trying to limit the suffering and injustice that existed in the world. So for Gandhi, nonviolence wasn't just about abstaining from committing harm. it was an active force that was uh, that really called him into fighting for social justice. And you see that in his approach to dietary issues. you know we talked about salt. that's a great example of his diet butting right up into his politics. We talked just now about vegetarianism. Another really powerful example is his fasting. You know, everybody knows that Gandhi fasted. Uh, very few people know just how much he fasted. He fasted a lot and for many different reasons. And almost in every case, the fast was a combination of spiritual religious belief with some kind of larger um, political goal. Um, whether it was uh, on, a, on a local scale like uh, his famous fast, in Calcutta, towards the end of his life, or whether it was on a more national scale, Gandhi connected his spirituality, his politics, his physical well-being, because he also fasted for physical health, to his politics through through fasting. Uh, and I think that uh, even though you know, I, I know uh, fasting is a com- it's a complicated subject, and we could talk more about the the difficulties of knowing how to fast in a healthy way and knowing when too much fasting can become extreme. We haven't talked much yet, but I, do, I should say that one of the things that I write, write a lot about in the book is the way in which Gandhi's obsessions with his diet can cross, the, in fact, did cross the border into things that I find myself find unhealthy. Um, I think overall what I took from studying Gandhi's fast is that there, he was a really beautiful example of a man who was willing to sacrifice his body to try to fight against uh, against imperialism, against religious extremism, uh, to fight for, to fight for his values. Uh, and that, that I, that I find very admirable.
0: Yeah. So what is the link between self-control in terms of diet and abstinence and self-rule in terms of democracy? Um, uh, one of the things that I found kind of troubling, uh, actually, about uh, this position was the link between healthy bodies and fitness for democracy. Um, and I wondered how, you know, from a disability studies point of view in the present, there might be problems with that. So what are some of your reactions there about, about self-control and self-rule?
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question. Uh, let me I mean, start with the word Swaraj. This is a very important word for Gandhi. It literally means self-rule and is often used in, as an equivalent for independence. But Swaraj does not equate to independence for Gandhi uh, because independence can mean freedom to do whatever you want. And for Gandhi, self-rule was much more about responsibility. It was about being in the position to be responsible over one's own life, over one's own community, over one's own nation. And there was a tight link for Gandhi between freedom from foreign rule and the right to rule oneself in, in the appropriate way. And this might sound a little bit uh, Victorian, and it was. It is to some degree about control in a problematic way. And yet, uh, it also led Gandhi to take some stances that I think were very, very important. For, for example, he says very clearly that Swaraj is not just about getting the British out of India. Swaraj is about building an India um, where people don't go hungry at night. Right where women and men are on an equal footing, where there's no such thing as untouchability, right, where people of different religious communities can live together. So his vision of Swaraj entails uh, a really a social revolution, not just a, a change in who happens to be in power in Delhi. Uh, and that I think is very powerful. Uh, he does run into trouble, I think, and I agree with you when he suggests, and he does this a couple times, that. Um, eating right will lead to a certain kind of physical health that will empower people, particularly himself, actually, as an agent of social change. Now, I should say in his defense that there, I think there is some sort of just basic truth to this, at least in Gandhi's case. If you look at the incredibly strenuous schedule that he set for himself and the remarkable rigors of his life, the fast are the best example of this, I think there's good evidence that the fact that he kept himself in such good physical health was important to his ability to be such an active agent of positive social change. But it begs the question of how we define health. And I think there's a big danger if we fall into some of our modern uh, misconceptions about what health means. And Gandhi can sadly contribute to that because he was, of course, obsessed with austerity, with eating less, with fasting, and was extraordinarily skinny. And so you could conclude from Gandhi's life and from some of the things he wrote that being healthy meant being skinny, and that only people who were skinny and able-bodied, right, narrowly defined, should uh, were would be able to fully contribute to society. I think Gandhi, at his best, avoids that kind of narrowness, uh, and I, I think the, the whole thing hinges on how you understand health. Uh, and I think, at his best, Gandhi challenges us to rethink that. You know, he has one great sentence that I quote in the introduction, if I remember right, where he writes about you know, being healthy doesn't mean having a weightlifter's body, you know, so he, he, at least he's good on that front, you know, he's not big on pumping iron. Um, but I think when it comes to sort of skinniness and fasting, he's more complicated.
0: Yeah, earlier, you mentioned some of those lines that he might have crossed between uh, a healthy interest and an unhealthy obsession. Um, can you give another example of that? Oh
1: yeah. Well, okay. So, uh, you know, I think fasting is a really good one. Um, being so extreme with salt intake, I think is another really good one. Um, trying to avoid flavors is really good. Uh, let me give you one I haven't talked about yet. It's related to the flavor thing and actually to the eating less thing too. Um, he, I think was quite rightly concerned with the proliferation of industrial foods and in part because of that and in part out of his sense of austerity he was big on simplifying the number of foods that he ate and would often um take vows to eat only five items of food per day and an item of food included something like salt for example Uh, and so you know his diet could be very very austere he would have you know uh yogurt almonds uh, a little salt, uh, some oranges, and some uh, you know leafy greens, for example. That would constitute the limit of what he could eat in that day. And I, I actually admire very much Gandhi's opposition to industrial foods, his general skepticism towards processed foods in general, and his desire to simplify his diet. Uh, all of that I admire and, and you know, actually try to employ in my own life in various ways. Uh, but I think he took it too far. I do. Um, there are sometimes when I I make a, a you know a salad which has sixteen things in it or uh, you know a stew where I'm just throwing in every vegetable I have in my fridge um, where I think to myself actually it's good sometimes to eat a great variety of things uh, I I think sometimes he does go too far in in trying to strip down to the basic minimum, the number of things he ate at any one time.
0: Right. And, and that link between pleasure or the the sort of abstinence from pleasure um, is not one I could get behind. Um, <laughs> but it, it also seems like another one of those contradictory struggles uh, where he has this pride in his Indian culture and Indian cuisine, but it is a very flavorful cuisine. Yes, um, yes, yes Talk yes, a little bit is. more about that.
1: Well, he maintains a love for Indian food all the way through his life. I mean, several of his comfort foods are foods that he grew up eating in his native Gujarat. Uh, there's a rice and lentil dish that he asks for often, even late in life, that you know, usually was prepared with quite a number of delicious spices. And I, I don't actually have good evidence. I, I've never seen him purposely tell someone not to make it that way. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you know, even in his more austere moments, he's willing to make some exceptions for those sorts of comfort foods. Um, I, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, I, as I said, I, I I think you can understand, at least I can understand, where being austere for perhaps certain periods of your life, right? Maybe taking a time. Some people, you know, do this during certain religious moments, whether it's you know Lent or. Uh, In in the Hindu calendar, actually, there are are times where Gandhi would purposefully cut out certain foods or purposely fast. I can see some merit to to austerity within limits. But I also myself find that uh, pleasure can be a very spiritually ennobling thing. It can bring us out of ourselves. And I think there's there's few better examples of this than Indian cooking itself. You know, I, I often thought to myself when I was studying Gandhi, you know, he would have done much better with his diet if he was living, let's say, in the American Midwest, you know. Um, you know, Pittsburgh has pretty good food these days. So I'm not so, I'm not so much talking about Pittsburgh, but sort of, you know, if he grew up where my, or my, uh, grandmother grew up in Southern Illinois, where, you know, the f- foods were bland and basic and most vegetables came from a can, um, then, you know, maybe being austere with his diet would have been more called for, but yeah, in, you know, in the land of Palak paneer, which is one of my favorite foods of all time, or, you know, uh, all, all the amazing things that come out of Indian, uh, kitchens. And we should say, of course, Indian food. Um, you know, you know this, and I'm sure most of our listeners do too. There isn't even just one kind of Indian food. There's so many different kinds of Indian food. Every region of India has its own, you know, culinary masterpieces. Um, for 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 India to produce such an austere man as Gandhi is, is quite an interesting paradox.
0: You describe a lot of uh, Gandhi's diet experiments as failures, right? So in the, in the chapter on salt, he uh, limits the salt in his diet, not just for his own health, but as a political action. Uh, and that political action doesn't seem to be successful, right? Um, he failed to be a vegan. He failed to maintain his raw diet, which I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit more. Um, what is some of the significance of these failures? Oh, I think the failures inspire his tolerance. They
1: inspire his ability to respect others who have failed. I think if Gandhi was the kind of person who decided to eat a certain way and then stuck to that for the rest of his life, he'd be a much less interesting figure. One thing he'd be less—you uh, know—he'd be less like all of us. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think most people in the world can really sympathize with someone who experiments with a variety of different diets and often fails. Uh, I think that's part of what it means to be human, and it's certainly part of what it means to be human with food. And I, I think it so it, it inspires Gandhi's tolerance, and also makes it makes it much easier for us to connect with him.
0: Yeah. Will you talk more about his raw diet? Um, what inspired that, and and how did it turn out?
1: Yes. Um, so Gandhi is inspired by a nutritional belief that cooking food. Uh, destroys or wastes various nutrients. This is a belief that's very common amongst vegetarians in his day and, and actually still has many advocates in our world today. And I can talk more about my own views on that. Um, you know, it's, a, it's another part of the book where I learned a lot actually from doing the research. So he has nutritional nutritional grounds for eating raw. He also has some social and political grounds for eating raw. He believes that it will help women who are disproportionately um, forced in many cases to spend long hours in the kitchen. Um, you know, I think, uh, I, I was a little, uh, weary of, in these sections of Gandhi's archive, because sometimes he can make assumptions about what cooking means for women. I think sometimes he's not aware of just how many women and men for that sake can actually really enjoy time in the kitchen. Um, uh, but I also think he's right that there are many cases where, uh, women in particular, particularly in, in India and Gandhi's day were uh not given options, right? And were required to spend long hours cooking. So he sees some social political merits to raw food. Um, and and then he tries it. And he, he tries it at a couple of different points. One of my uh, favorite documents that I draw upon is actually a diary that he makes during one of these raw food experiments. And he's very candid about the struggle. Uh, he finds it very difficult to maintain the diet because of the toll that it takes on his body. And he ends up abandoning in it. He never holds on to a raw diet for super long. I will say one thing in defense of those who advocate raw diets in our world today, and I have I have a good friend who's spent a lot of time eating raw. Um, Gandhi's options were quite limited. Uh, there were many key, key pillars of contemporary raw food diets that uh, Gandhi didn't have access to for one reason or another. Uh, and so I bet he could have done much better with a raw food diet actually if he lived, uh, you know, in a city like Pittsburgh today. But I I also think some of it had to do with the uh, other constraints that Gandhi put on himself in his diet. Um, So if you add up all the different ways that he was limiting himself, I think it became quite hard for him to sustain a raw food diet.
0: You connect, uh, especially his raw diet, to today's paleo diet and some other mm. trends that we've talked about. Um, nut milks, we can talk about that some more too. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What problems or issues or, or questions about diet did Gandhi face that that we're still dealing with today? Um, cool. What do you think he has to offer us now? Is he uh, uh, a story of wisdom or, or a story of caution or some of both? Oh, he's
1: both. know, yeah, he's definitely both. Uh, and, you know, the, the caution – and the wisdom often collide. So for example, I think studying Gandhi's diet is a wonderful way to be cautioned about uh, believing that any one diet will solve, will solve all the problems. I think there's still a very strong tendency in our world that's driven lar- in large part by money, right, by trying to sell books and sell diets, to tell people, aha, you know, you're struggling with this, that, or the other, well, come and do this diet, right? Whether it's the paleo diet or, um, you know, the various kinds of fasting diets or, you know, there, there's so many kind of get healthy quick schemes out there that, um, that I think can lead people to um, be really hard on themselves for one thing uh, when things don't live up to to their hopes and expectations, they often people can take it as a personal failure, and and or um, can lead people to a certain kind of extremism or absolutism, uh, and that's where Gandhi Gandhi's both a cautionary note, but also also I think an example for us because even though he could be quite absolute and extreme in certain moments and in certain times, I think taken as a whole, he's an example of someone who really believed in in. Uh, in evidence-based diets, in recognizing limitations, recognizing failures, owning up to them, and being humble. Um, and, and let me give you another example. He uh, he had a long-standing uh, debate with a few different uh, British nutritional scientists who worked for the for the empire. And here's Gandhi. You know, um, writing from this, in many ways, radical position, both politically and nutritionally. And yet, Gandhi is able to uh, accept on more than one occasion when his views on particular kind of food or, or, or vitamin were wrong. Uh, vitamins are actually a fascinating thing for Gandhi because our knowledge of vitamins was just growing at the time when Gandhi was most interested in nutrition. And early on, he believed, for example, that he could get vitamin D from various food sources. Um, and you know, it's only at, after being told by... The scientists that know actually, you get vitamin D from exposure to the sun. Gandhi accepts that; uh, he embraces it, and he he you know he changes his opinion. Uh, I have a chapter in the book on on um, diet and health uh, because so many of Gandhi's approaches to food were uh, filtered through his conceptions of health and medicine, um, and he was a big, big, big uh, practitioner of traditional Indian forms of medicine, particularly Ayurveda. Um, And yet, he was also a huge critic of particular approaches to Ayurveda that were uh, unwilling to uh, be humble, unwilling to recognize that maybe that particular practitioner, that particular diet didn't have all the answers. So he's he's willing to buck the norm, to be radical, to experiment, and all those things I think are positive. And then he's willing to accept when maybe he's wrong. And that I think is also positive. So I, I think we can learn from his... Uh, from his strengths and from his weaknesses. I I certainly have learned from both.
0: Yeah, are there things that you've changed about your diet since you've done this project?
1: Uh, Yes, although I, I I should preface my answer by saying that I'm wary of suggesting that I learned something from Gandhi, put it into practice in my life, and now everything's better. That actually falls right into that trap we were just talking about, you know. So I don't. I, I would say um, I still certainly have my dietary and culinary struggles. I had them before I started my research. It's part of why I did my research, and the research helped me understand them better and helped me help me make some real significant changes. But it hasn't solved all my problems. You know, it's an ongoing struggle for me, as it was for Gandhi. Um, I'd say the biggest success, um, and you know, if 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 my wife was here. Um, you know, uh, she could, uh, validate this or maybe complicate it cause I'm still working on it, but I think I've gotten better at being relaxed as a father around issues of food. You know, I think in the first few years when we had kids, I, uh, was all too quick to try to use my nutritional knowledge, uh, or what I thought I knew about nutrition to get my kids to eat especially healthy things. And of course, you know, when you have little kids, they often resist that they want to eat what they want to eat. Um, and I was one of those fathers who, uh, would often get quite stressed and tense, um, because, you know, my daughter wasn't eating her edamame or, you know, my, uh, you know, my son wasn't eating his spinach, although he actually loves spinach. You know, he was, I don't know, he wasn't eating his broccoli. Uh, and that was a mistake. Uh, It took me a long time to see that as a mistake. I'm still, uh, I'm still working on it. And in, and part of why it's so hard is because of course you do you do want to care about what your kids eat you do want to care about anyone you love eats, um, and you as a parent you can't just give up entirely on trying to teach them how to eat healthily and and trying to help them eat healthy foods, uh, so you have to try to find a middle ground. I think everyone everyone has their own approach to that middle ground. I certainly don't claim to have figured it out in any way, but reading about Gandhi's struggles um, in his own diet and also as a father, you know Gandhi. Could be very, very uh, authoritarian as a father and very demanding of his children. Uh, it helped. It helped me relax a bit and it helped me loosen up. Um, I, I've become more moderate with salt. I mentioned that. I've become a little bit more strict with sugar, although I'm still working on that. Uh, you know, I, I I vowed to never have dessert, and then I think like three hours later had a dessert. Um, and in fact, that case that case is actually telling because it was. It was a free dessert. One of my big weaknesses is that I am terrible with free food. I just cannot resist. Even if I'm totally full, I, even if I don't like the food, if someone offers me something free, um, which you know, of course happens all the time on a university campus, uh, it's very hard for me to say no. Um, and Gandhi writes about this. You know, He writes actually about how we should uh, be more thoughtful in, in when we try to force food on other people um, because we often think we're being nice to them but in many cases, we're not. You know in many cases, we're actually putting them in an awkward position where they feel like they have to eat something they don't want to eat. Um, so you know my, I don't know if this is a Gandhian solution or not, but I've been actually starting to carry around like a little Ziploc bag, because often I just can't say no, but if I have a Ziploc bag, at least I can like, stick whatever it is in the Ziploc bag and hopefully eat it later when I'm hungry. Um, you know, so is it, I, I, yeah, well, I'm trying. I, it's not easy. You know It wasn't easy for Gandhi. I don't think it's easy for any of us. I think what's one of the, the the most fun things about writing the book, and I hope about reading it, is that I hope that readers will see in Gandhi not a teacher who will say, "Ah, here's to, well, here's what you should do, X, Y, and Z," but rather, uh, you know, a sort of a friend who's struggling in this with you, and so you can say, "Aha, well, maybe I'll learn this from Gandhi, maybe I'll learn that from Gandhi." But the biggest thing, at least I've taken, is just to try to be try to be humble and try to be kind to myself, even as I'm I'm trying to improve.
0: Yeah. So on a personal note, I am a scholar of cookbooks and recipes, and I was surprised to find that there are recipes at the end of this book. Uh, And some of them come from Gandhi, from the archive, and some of them are your own, kind of using Gandhi's ingredients. Why did you choose to include recipes at the end?
1: Oh, I had to. I couldn't resist. I I mean, for one thing, because I, I don't want this to just be an intellectual exercise for readers. Uh, I I think that would be a you know that would be a waste. Uh, my 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 biggest hope is that this book will help people uh, d- act differently in their relationship to food, and that might mean eating eating food that that people find healthier for themselves that makes them feel better in their bodies. It it I hope will also mean helping people think about how to eat more ethically and to eat in a way that is better for the farmers who are producing the food, the people who are picking it, people who are transporting it. Uh, you know, I, I hope the book can help inspire people to action. And what, you know, what better form or way of doing that than providing a couple, you know, recipes that people might might put into practice. Some of those recipes, as you said, are things I took directly from Gandhi. For example, how he made almond milk. Um, and, you know, first he starts with an almond jelly that he can eat. You could turn it into an almond butter, and then you can make it an almond milk, so it's it's versatile. And others are things that I have come to love. Um, that I see as, at least, uh, you know, if not of Gandhian origin, at least in, in accordance with Gandhian philosophy.
0: Well, I'll try one of those out, I promise. <laughs>
1: yes, I recommend I, I I recommend them all. Great.
0: Uh, so what kind of projects are you working on now? For a person who just put out two books this year, you're allowed to take a break <laughs> if you'd like to. Um, but what's well, next? Uh, so, you know, I,
1: I, I really love, I love what I do. It's one of the great joys of... Um, of my life is that I, I'm able to do things that I really love. And so I kind of, I kind of already dove into some new historical projects. Uh, I'm working on a, a book about uh, the civil rights movement and particularly about the role of learning in the civil rights movement. How did civil rights activists learn to do the things they, they do? How did they learn to sit on a stool and, and let people, Pour coffee on them, or put cigarettes on them, or hit them, and maintain nonviolence in that context. What what did that, what did that mean for them, and how and how did they help teach that to other people and pull other people in the movement? So that that project's uh, really been meaningful. Um, I've also started this very early days. I, you might be the first person I've said this to, but I've actually started taking some notes on kind of a food memoir. I wrote a book about my older brother that ended up being really being a memoir that hasn't been published yet. I'm, in, I'm in kind of in the last stages of editing that one, and I loved, I loved, loved writing that book because, for, well, for many reasons, because I, I love my brother, but also because it um, it was it was a book that I learned a lot from. Actually, just like the Gandhi book, uh, and so I started taking notes on writing a book about food and fatherhood. Um, so as I said, you know, it's a it's a place where I'm actively struggling, trying to get better, trying to learn. How do you be someone who cares so much about food and nutrition and cares so much about your kids and yet can relax when all they want to eat is macaroni and cheese or you know, they want to buy a popsicle at the park or something? Uh, so I'm, I, I've, I've just started taking notes on that. I don't know what form that will take, but it's been helpful for me to start thinking about those ideas in that way.
0: In addition to your academic work, you're also the founder and director of the Bajaj Rural Development Lab and SocialChange101.org. Do you want to talk a little bit about those projects and how they connect?
1: Sure. Um, So uh, they both have a Gandhian link, actually. So the the Bajaj uh, Lab is a collaboration with a really remarkable group of people in central India and Wardha. Um, they're based uh, very close to Gandhi's last ashram. Uh, you know, Gandhi sets up in war the, uh, in the middle of his life, and that's his really his home base uh, all the way until he's assassinated. And this this group of, um, of people, uh, the Kamal Nayan Jamnalal Bajaj Foundation, um, they're operating with money that is from the Bajaj family, and Jamnalal Bajaj was one of Gandhi's most important financial supporters and was the main reason why Gandhi comes to Warda in the first place. So they're, they're, they have this um, wonderful historical connection to Gandhi, and they also have a contemporary connection in that they're really trying to bring his ideas to practice by fighting against poverty and other social wrongs in the Warda area, and doing really remarkable things with it. The Bajaj Lab is just is primarily an educational effort to help people learn about and from the work that the Bajaj Foundation is doing in India, because they're, um, they're doing so many incredible things in terms of water management, alternative energy sources, organic farming, um, and helping helping farmers in a part of India where there's a lot of poverty and, and with climate change, a lot of instability. Uh, that's the Bajaj Lab. Socialchange101.org is a free open access online course on the history of social movements and social change. And we also run a series of workshops where we go and work primarily with high school kids. We've done it with other groups too. Uh, where we try to help um, young people particularly think through what are the issues that they care most about uh, in their communities, in in their country, in the world, and then how they can get involved. We use history, but we also use a lot of art. I'm a big believer in art as a form of social change and as a way of helping people think about social change. So we um, help students create video projects or to engage in other forms of art uh, as a way to help empower them as agents of social change.
0: Do either of those projects intersect with food justice?
1: Uh, I hope so. So um, both do tangentially, but I, I like them even more strongly. So in, in the case of the Bajaj Lab, a lot of the work they do, basically all the work they do is with farmers. And a lot of the work they do is actually particularly with crops, diversifying crops, helping farmers um, cut back or eliminate uh, industrial inputs, move towards various forms of organic farming. Uh, and, and so there's, um, there's a strong food dimension to it. Um, and if you factor in the sort of ways in which they're trying to empower low-income folks, I'd say there's also a food justice component to it. Um, on the social, ju- uh, social change 101 side to it, um, we, you know, the, the website has a variety of different projects um, that we've done with local artists and with high school groups and others. And one of the, one of the key portals, one of the key ways in is through Rachel Carson. So you, you, know, you teach at Chatham. Um, of course, Rachel Carson is a distinguished alum of, of um, Chatham University who is a very important figure in the environmental movement, you know author of Silent Spring. I expect many listeners will know this stuff already., uh, but we actually have some great resources for anyone who wants to go a little deeper with Rachel Carson's life and work. Um, uh, you know, a variety of different tools that can help people learn more about Carson and connect her and her legacy to various, uh, questions in our world today, not just environmentalism, but also issues of gender and sexuality and other struggles that Carson was involved in.
0: Well, we could certainly talk about this great book all day. Uh, again, the book is Gandhi: uh, Gandhi's Search for the Perfect Diet, Eating with the World in Mind. Thank you so much, Nico, for talking with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Carrie. This has been a real joy.